Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your word to us, the Bible. And whether we sit here today, reluctant to be here, critical, not wanting to listen, or whether we sit here expectant, longing to hear you speak through your word and, and expecting your spirit to work through that word and to transform us, to make us more like your son, the Lord Jesus. Wherever we're at, please help us now. Please soften our hearts. If we come with all sorts of presuppositions, help us to just rethink, give ourselves the opportunity to have a look afresh at your word to us. Please wonderfully transform us. May this be an honouring time to you, I pray. Amen. So as I said, we're, we're in our last in a series. Uh, anyone want a pen quickly? Uh, Neil, there's a couple down here. I think that'd be great. We're in the last in our series. We've been looking at, at the wisdom literature, particularly in the book of Proverbs. We've called this Wisdom for London Life. And we leave, if you like, the best and perhaps the hardest uh, until last. Wisdom for relationships. Why? Why relationships? That's a good question to ask, isn't it? Well, firstly, because if you saw in the news recently, relationship anxiety even now has its own categorization according to the British Medical Journal. And if you look at any survey, any statistical analysis, I've looked at a few this week, it always comes in the top two for causes of anxiety. Uh, the other two are very close, you know, things like uh, our workplace and our finances are usually uh, there as well. Such pain and anxiety, though, with regard to relationships, can linger for years. And the, and the problem with, if you like, anxiety with regard to relationships is that it can often go unseen. It's more complex than other pains, if you like. The fact is we can deny it ourselves and see we're even feeling it. And we certainly can conceal it from others. It's not like the pain of, you know, you break a leg. C.S. Lewis puts points this out in his book, The Problem with Pain, very helpful book. He says, mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it's more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It is easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. I want to make four brief acknowledgements, acknowledgements before we begin. They're very quick, so listen in. I want to first acknowledge that hearts will be broken here. That is, I don't want to go any further without saying, we know that to be true. There will be a level of brokenheartedness amongst us in every area of our lives. It may not be that dramatic. We might not, to use, we might not want to use that kind of terminology. It may just be a sense of disappointment, loss, frustration, a low-level anxiety, we like to call it today. But I also want to recognise that this is not the exclusive domain of any particular group of people. There will be those struggling in relationships, there will be those struggling out of relationships. Uh, whether we're married, single, with children, without children, struggling to have more children, uh, whatever our circumstances, all are included. There will be frustrations, there will be anxiety, there will be sorrow, loss, uh, probably to, in all of us to a degree. So I, I don't think there could be more applicable subject, really. Second, a uh, little uh, quick uh, introduction or acknowledgement. I want to say very obviously, and I'll say it littered throughout, that culture dr kind of bangs a different drum, doesn't it? We see around us is that relationships have been transformed totally from what we will read today in Proverbs and throughout the rest of the Bible. I want you to expect that so you're not shocked as we go through things. 
And in a sense, we begin any time when we're looking at God's word and we've got to decide, who do we want to be Lord? Do we want God, through his word, to direct our lives, our paths? Or do we want to say, no, I'm going to go with everyone else? It's a good thing to start any kind of talk, any investigation in God's word and say, who do you want to be in control? Who's going to be Lord? Who are you going to listen to? Your own heart, your own desires, everyone else around you, or are you going to listen to God? Because culture bangs a very different drum on this subject. Thirdly, a third acknowledgement, relationships are the ultimate for so many around us, aren't they? Alongside wealth and power, those other two biggest forms of anxiety within our culture. Uh, you know, if you're in, you're really in, aren't you? If you're in a relationship or if you're out, you are really out. It is the ultimate for so many. Too many. And the crushing reality is that no relationship can ever kind of fulfil those ultimate expectations that are placed on it. That fulfilment can only be found in one place and we'll end there today. Relationships are the ultimate for many. Fourth thing, this talk will be inadequate for two reasons. It's not, an, it's not normal that you hear a sermon that begins with, this is going to be totally inadequate. It will be for two reasons. Firstly, because I can't cover every type of, uh, type of relationship in any detail. If you think of all the relationships that are represented here, whether that's marriage, whether that's singleness, whether that is you know, the parent-child relationship, or whether that's the workplace relationship, all the types of relationships we enjoy, it, and, and I'll mention in Proverbs, if I were to deal with every single one of those, I would probably have about 90 seconds on each. And it would be totally inadequate. So, firstly, it's going to be inadequate in that regard. Secondly, it will be inadequate because of the way that we're going to approach the subject I've mentioned this every week, and it's been a bit of a, an, an apology at the beginning of every talk, but I'll say it again. We are going to look at more passages than we normally do as we gather and look at God's Word together. You know, it's not our normal kind of way of doing things. And this will mean that I cannot give adequate context to every passage. I'll try to do a bit, but I can't put everything into, into its bigger context. That is... Uh, not the best way to teach, if I'm honest. I do want you to trust me, uh, but I also want you to teach you to, I want to teach you, as, as Ash does, it's our great passion to show you, I want you to be critical, I want you to be able, when you come to God's word, to see it for yourself, not to just say, I want to be spoon-fed, with verse by verse, but I'm going to do a little bit of both today. There is an inadequacy built in, into the way that we're going to do things. I say that now, but I, I want it in a sense to, to paint a big picture so that you go away critically. You go away to have a look and dig deeper into these subjects. But there is a, there's a level of inadequacy by the way that we are doing things today. But I hope it will push you to go further, to ask more questions. So as you see on your outlines, we're going to, get, we're going to approach this subject in two parts. In part one, I'm going to try to provide, if you like, a biblical overview in, through the book of Proverbs uh, and the wisdom there on relationships, covering all types of relationships, or many. And then I want to examine the function, if we can, of relationships for two main points. Firstly, I want to see the joint purpose of other person-orientated relationships. And also then, secondly, what leads from that, look at the restorative nature of relationships. Part one, uh, and then in part two, I want to examine friendship. Simply because it includes everyone. 
If I would just focus on marriage, uh, people will feel left out. If I, if I focus on, you know, parent-child, people, friendship includes us all. And therefore I want to look at those principles that we look at in part one and then apply them into part two and show you why it's so significant. So let's get to part one if we can. On your sheets there, the function of relationships. And first point there, other person orientated relationship. I want you to look, maybe you don't have to do it, but think about your diary for the week to come. That's on your phone or whatever diary you've got. I wonder if you have any social engagements that do not directly serve and please you. You know, at work, you know, I know time is pressed and you're thinking, well, I've got no time for anyone else apart from me and my career kind of progressing and so on. But I wonder, do you, do, do you give any time? Do you think about it? Do you set aside any time for anyone other than you and your progression? Even if, you know, you, you know that the boss isn't watching, you know he's not going to think, oh, isn't he a kind, generous, kind-hearted person? You know, do you give any time to anyone else? Now, it isn't wrong. Please don't hear me. It's not wrong to go out and have a great time with friends. But I wonder, do you ever consider serving those who are on the outside? Who you know are struggling or don't have so many friends? I wonder, do you ever, do you ever think like that to serve others? You know, you're thinking who they might be in your own hearts and minds now. Would you ever consider inviting X to go out with your group of friends? Would you ever consider, you know, spending a little bit of time with person Y in the office who you know is a bit of a loner or struggling on a particular part of the work? You know, would you ever consider helping them out, spending some time with them, encouraging them? I think we all recognise that we have become very self-serving in our relationships. Is that a problem? Let's, let's think firstly in terms of marriage, if we can. Turn, if you can, with me to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. That is on page uh, 636. Proverbs chapter 2. And verse 16 and verse 17. The warning here, a bit of context, comes from father to son. You remember the theological bookends of, of Proverbs? It's really chapters 1 to 9. It's the beginning part, the instruction from father to son. Here we go. The warning comes. Wisdom will save you from the adulterous woman. It will say, oh, I read this strong. It will save you also from the adulterous wisdom, that is, from the wayward wife with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she has made before God. See, the son here is warned from the immediate pleasure of the adulterous woman. She has left God's wisdom because she's left the partner of her youth. It's his spouse, but literally the partner word there is the most intimate and best friend. Now, wisdom here speaks into a culture where this would have been deemed utterly mad, totally crazy. God is speaking to a society that considered marriage as a means of financial security or continue a family of names through childbearing and so on, but you didn't marry for love. That was the last thing in your mind. You got physical satisfaction elsewhere and all that kind of stuff. Marriage was functionally self-serving. To help you through society. But God commands here that, that there must be love when we marry. Our spouse should be that most closest, intimate, best friend, the partner of a youth. The warning comes through here. If you were to turn to Proverbs 5, verse 20 or 19, 19 as well. I'm not going to read it out, but the language is fairly fruity. We're to be intoxicated there with our spouses. Such is our love for them. 
See, in Proverbs 2, as we're we're there in verse 16 and 17, the warning is to the son, don't, don't, like the adulterous woman, leave your best, most intimate friend for a quick fling. And the warning comes in the following verse where that might lead to. Down to death. It's frightening. See, marriage is is a partnership we see in chapter 2. A future-orientated covenant is established that declares we will love and serve Not ourselves, but the other. It honours God and it is best for us long term as well, Proverbs goes on to say. You see, if if couples look ultimately to their marriage for their pleasure, for their satisfaction, in that moment that they can have just established their marriage, it won't be long, very long, and all the married couples will be nodding here, it won't be very long until you realise that that kind of satisfaction is not on tap the whole time. You know, yeah, we're getting there. Marriage is not a promise to love for that moment when the spouse is young and it's thrilling and it's exciting and it's fun. I don't know if you remember, have you ever noticed when you go to a wedding service, what are the vows? How are they spoken of? What tense are they spoken of? They're always looking forward, aren't they? Marriage is not a declaration of present love. It's a promise of a future love, whatever the struggles. You don't make a vow to say, you know, when... This, you know, this gorgeous person that stood beside you looking absolutely glorious on their wedding day. You don't sort of you know, make a vow saying, yeah, I love you now because it's going to be great, it's really exciting, well, you know, and so on. You make a vow, don't you, to say it's going to be tough at times. And I'm not going to put my needs first, I'm going to put your needs first. And when it hurts, I'm going to put your needs first. See, the function of a marriage is to love, support, cherish the other it is other person orientated. Let's think about parenthood for, for just a moment, if we can. Like parents, we can so easily fall into the trap, can't we, of producing our trophy children to show off on the mantelpiece of our lives. Zach utterly crushed me yesterday for missing a goal, literally a metre away from the goal line. He managed to spoon it off for even a throw. It didn't even go for a corner. I mean, it, was a, it was the worst shot I've ever seen, Zach, you've ever done in your life. You know, so he could never be on the... I'm, I'm joking. He played brilliantly. But it was, it was awful. We love each other. It was great. <laughs> but so often, I see it on the football pitch, I see it everywhere we go, Children are there, in a sense, to be trophies on the mantelpiece of our lives. We do all we can for them, but our motives at times, if we're honest, parents, can be very questionable. So what is the main job of a parent, according to God's wisdom? See, traditional jobs, uh, traditional cultures will say the main job, and you may have grown up in this, will say, control the children. And they'll turn to Proverbs 22, 15. You can turn there if you want, Proverbs 22, verse 15. I like to quote this at my children regularly. Folly, obviously they've got to get the voice right. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. The rod is not necessarily a rod there. Literally it means to take authority. It's interesting, I I, I kind of coach this little football team, that's part of it, and... uh, you know, some of the kids I have to absolutely ball at. You know, do this, don't do that, do that, and so on. And some of them I can just give a little stare to and just go, and they'll stop immediately. But they know the discipline. Traditional cultures say the main job of the parents is just to take control, to discipline, to have that authority. But we don't see that very often around us. 
And if you look on various kind of social networks and so on, you'll see that most modern cultures, the main job of the parent is to, is to love, to build up and, and, and to give affection to your children all the time in every way you possibly can. Or and it goes on. The problem is, is, there is a problem with both of those ways. For often we control our children so that we can have a quiet afternoon. It's self-serving, isn't it? And we can shower them with love and affection to spoil them, to keep them on side, to avoid those hard conversations that say, no, you can't have that. Again, it's self-serving. And the main job of a parent is, is neither of those things, to control and to love and show affection. Yes, we do that, but it's not the main job. The main job is that our children need wisdom. They need the wisdom of God. And in so doing, as we pass on that wisdom, as we teach them that wisdom, we are serving them and not ourselves. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 8, if you can, uh, just for a moment. Do you remember the goal of the whole book of Proverbs is stated in chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. We don't want our children to be fools. We long them to be wise. And then the warning comes, listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. See, parents, when you're tired and you come back from a really hard day at work, the last thing you would perhaps want to do at that moment is to, is to go upstairs and to tuck your child in and read the Bible with them and pray with them. What are you going to do? What's most important? God's wisdom shows us again and again that the function of relationships is firstly this other person orientated. You're saying, no, my son, my daughter, you need God's wisdom. Doesn't matter how shattered I am. You need God's wisdom. In marriage, our spouses ought to be the best and most intimate friends, as we saw in chapter 2. Uh, it should be our delight to lovingly serve them, whatever the cost we see. As well, as parents, we are to serve our children by teaching them wisdom. The easy option is either to default to control or to shower affection on them. But it isn't that simple. It needs to be more nuanced. We have to do both. To have authority and to shower them affection. But most importantly, we are to teach them the good news. The wisdom of God. We are to serve them. And in so doing, you'll begin to restore them to a likeness of Christ. And that's the second thing we see, that the second function of relationships, it leads from the first, is that they are to be restorative. Let's think of marriage for a moment. You can turn over if you want, you'll know, well, I'm sure, Ephesians chapter 5. I'm sorry, we're just going to skip out of, um, someone shout out a page number when we get there, if you can. 1176. Turn to Ephesians 5, verse 25. We see, begin to see that restorative uh, part of relationships, restorative function within the marriage here. Verse 25 of chapter 5 of Ephesians, page 1176. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? To make her holy. Cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. See, we are not loved by Jesus because, look at us, we're, aren't, we, aren't we fantastic? That is not the reason that we've been loved by Jesus. We're loved by Jesus because we need restoring 
And Jesus loves us to make us holy. He restores us. And the same is true for marriage, which is Paul's point in Ephesians 5. There should be a restorative effect in relationships. And the same is true in parenting as well. The son who's warned about the adulterous woman back in Proverbs chapter 2. If you want to flick back there, you can. It's page 676, I think. No, 636. The son who's warned about the adulterous woman there in chapter 2, verse 16, is also warned that if he were to continue, there's not only it leading to death, a struggle in life there, because deception takes toll on a man, but also we see... Chapter 2, verse 18, her house leads down to death. There is a more permanent judgment if he persists, if he ignores wisdom. He will not live in the land it finally comes. See, wisdom calls out and speaks into our relationships so that we might serve as God himself serves in the Trinity, as in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relationship. Wisdom calls us to love and serve others sacrificially. And as a result, they will know the restoration that comes from listening to God and honouring God through obedience to his word. Look, they are two very, very broad principles. And we could have mapped them out in all sorts of different relationships. We see that God, that God honouring wise relationships are other person-centred and restorative by nature. And I wonder if you sit there and go, how am I doing? Feeling slightly, not totally sure right now. Maybe. Well, what I want to do just to finish with in our second part here is, is to examine that within something which is applicable to all of us. That is in the realm of friendship. It is so important. Can I just firstly commend to you before I dive any further in? I, this book has been so supremely helpful to me. and I'm so thankful for my, I think it was my grandfather that gave me this. It is C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. Uh, many of you have read it, I'm sure. Um, it's, it's essentially a number of essays just sort of put together in a book. And uh, chapter four is on uh, friendship. It's incredibly cheap. I think the Kindle is about one or two pounds. Um, so if you're on electronic, but you can pick them up anywhere uh, as well. Incredibly helpful. Let me show you some of the things that he would teach us through the book of Proverbs, I believe, as well. Firstly, uh, we see that a friend is closer than a brother. Let's turn to chapter 18, if we can, of Proverbs. Again, remember, we're trying to look at the principles that we've seen and push them through and see them, observe them within the realm of friendship. So chapter 18, verse 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Again, here we see that other person orientated love. <clears throat> but notice also that friends are unique in that even in difficult times, they are close. Oh yeah, your family might be there in difficult times, uh, but they're there because they feel they have to be. There's an automatic kind of, I've got to be there because uh, you know, a family member's there. They might not like you, but they'll be there. That's what families do. But friendship never seems to be the priority. Wherever we look, and it's demoted all too often in our, in our culture, you know, liberal cultures will prioritise the romantic relationships. We see that around us all the time, don't we? You may have grown up, as I did, in a more conservative culture where family's everything. You know, you've got to get there because it's a family event. And off you go. None of us know this particularly, but there's more kind of socialistic cultures which prioritise the civic relationships. We saw that 
you know, in the Eastern Bloc a lot more, but all three places, wherever you look within cultures, they demote friendship. But despite that, Lewis says in his book, friendship's irreplaceable. It's interesting as uh, Lewis uh, wrote that, he, he makes note of a, a good friend of his, Tolkien, who also wrote a book about friendship. You'll know that. Lord of the Rings. It's interesting in The Four Loves, he, he, makes, um, he makes note uh, of, of the main purpose of that book, the, the, the great friendship in the centre of it. It's interesting how the films have distorted that, isn't it? It all becomes about romantic love. See, our culture has kind of played a part in changing that. Because Aragorn and Arwen, they're, they're not the centrepiece of the book, but they are the film. But you see, in our culture, romantic love sells. You look at magazines, and you know, the songs you listen to, Ed Sheeran doesn't write much about friendship, does he? Friendship is always demoted. Why, though? Mainly because it, is, it isn't a necessity to have friends. We're not bound as we are, like family, you know, biologically, to kind of do our duty there amongst them. And second, we're not bound like we are in a romantic love due to the pressures around us. You know, culture that's the be-all, that's the ultimate. You've got to get the romantic relationship. We're not bound like that in friendship. Lewis puts it this way. Friendship is the only love that is absolutely deliberate. But we've got to see its necessity. Turn with me to chapter 10, if you can, verse 21. Chapter 10, verse 21. The lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of judgment. The lack of judgment there is actually lack of friends as well. You could translate it. The point there, that the proverb is saying, we're going to really struggle if we go without friends. Because friends, as the previous proverb say, are closer than a brother. They've, they've made a deliberate decision to love you, to put you first in their lives. They're thinking other person-orientated relationship there. But what is a friend? Well, if you, if you just nip back to chapter 18, verse 24, the, the many companions proverb there, the other way it's described is that they're unreliable friends. They, if you have lots of them, they'll come to ruin you know, the myth of Facebook friends, they're companions, by the way, if you haven't worked it out already. Friends are a rare necessity. That is, you can't have the many. They are rare. If a friend is going to be a true friend, you can't have loads of them because none of them will know you well enough. You will spread yourself too thinly. No one will be able to love you in a significant way. No one will have the big picture of your life because someone will know that about you and someone will know that and someone will know that. You can't have too many friends. A friend, a true friend, is, is also deemed such a joy as well. Let's just turn over to, to chapter 27, verse 9. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart and the pleasantness of one's friend springs from his earnest counsel. Pleasantness there is also, uh, the word is sweetness, really. Lewis picks up on this really helpfully. And he, he shows that within the culture there, um, you, uh, there will be no artificial sweetness. There's no sugar there in that, in that sense, in that culture. And sweetness usually therefore meant honey. So what the parallel is showing is that there's, there's to be a sweetness in a friend. It's like honey on your lips. It's lovely. But like honey in those times, like any sweetness in times, you had to go out and find it. You've got to discover it. There's a deliberate decision to go and get it. You can't create sweetness as we can now in a lab. 
And likewise, he's saying, friendship's got to be discovered and then kind of grown as well. C.S. Lewis is helpful here in this chapter, and he said, he suggests that friendship isn't found by asking someone, hey, will you be my friend? Yeah, that's a bit like reception in school, isn't it? So, Please be my friend, off you go. In fact, Lewis is really critical and mocks that, he calls it being a, nearly a sad loner, essentially. But rather he suggests you have to discover friends as you discover mutual loves and passions. Lewis actually calls them, it's a lovely phrase, fellow travellers, and Tolkien picks up on that in Lord of the Rings, doesn't he? A friend is the kind of person that you discover after a while, and you're sort of saying, oh, you like that too. It's a shared passion, it's a shared joy, an interest, which is what makes a friend so close, closer than a brother. One of my brothers is actually a train spotter. You can understand why we're not that close. (laughs) He's a nice guy, but I don't share his passion. See, the closeness of a true friend means they are closer than a brother. You can't have many. You can't spread yourself that thinly. Friends are also sweet and even pleasant. Even as they give you advice, the the context is there. That is sweet to you too, because you see it's going to be restorative. Secondly, a friend is closer than a brother. A friend loves at all times. Here again, we see that other person restorative nature. Let's turn to chapter 17 as we quickly move on. Chapter 17, verse 17, page 652. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. All times, not all the time. That would be incredibly annoying, wouldn't it? But all kinds of times. A friend is there at the sad times, at the struggling times, also the joyful times. They want to share that with you too. That is, I think the point here is you you can't be a friend without availability. If you visit old uni friends once a year, I want you to be honest with yourself. They're not your friends. They're your companions. So many people spend so much time and so much money uh, and weekends keeping up with companions. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't want to say, don't go away for the weekend and visit old, you know, an old companion. So, no, there's nothing wrong with that. Have a good time. But also recognise that there's a negative to that because it is to the detriment of good friendships that you could be building up. Most of our, friend, our relationships are, are fairly utilitarian. By that I mean that people say that you're friends because they, you are useful to them and they are useful to you. That is things like you know, LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter, that's all they, they're designed for. They essentially make connections that are useful to your ego that are useful to their ego, that are useful to your social life or their social life, your credibility amongst peers or their credibility amongst peers. But what is the difference between a friend who loves at all times and a fun companion that you're connected to? Let me try and spell it out if I can with an example. If you post on Facebook, not that anyone does this, but if you were to do this, I have cancer, I am scared, I am going to hospital tomorrow for a big operation. A companion will write a note of comfort. They'll put some nice verse down and say, you know, the Lord is your shade, Psalm 121, or something like that. The difference is a friend will just drop everything and they will be there. 
And that is the difference. A companion makes you a means to an end, uh, one commentator wrote. You're useful to them. A friend to a friend, you are an end in yourself. A friend says, I'll be there. Whatever, I'll be there. Whatever the cost. Keller once said it, I thought it was really helpful in one of his books. He said, a fair weather friend is an oxymoron. It just makes no sense. But what does their love look like? Let's just turn to chapter 27 if we can. Chapter 27, verse 14. Really, we haven't got very long to go. We're very close. Chapter 27, verse 14. There's a couple of verses like this, and I think that I found them really amusing, but I wanted to share them with you. Because what does the love of a friend look like? Look, 27 verse 14. If a man loudly blesses his neighbour early in the morning, it will be taken as a curse. I love that. There's a picture of it. You know, six o'clock in the morning. I love you, my neighbour. Bless you. As you awake, way before you intended to awake. It's brilliant. A friend is emotionally attuned to you. They know when to have fun, they know when to shut up, and they know when to say the hard things. They're not, uh, as you might say, emotionally distant from you. If you're unhappy, they will feel that. Chapter 25, 20 speaks of a similar thing, of, of singing songs of joy to a heavy heart. Yeah, a friend doesn't do that. Hey, I'm going to sing these great songs, but you're crying in the corner. No, a friend doesn't do that. Be insensitive. Let me summarise a bit. The love of a friend is deliberate, it's sacrificial, it's emotionally sensitive because they know you. They're close to you. But I think I leave the really important one to last. 27 verse 5 and 6. We're on that same page. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted but an enemy multiplies kisses. See, a friend must be willing to say the hard things even if it costs the friendship itself. It seems paradoxical, but the picture there is very vivid. The hidden love, the hidden love of verse 5, is, as in Hebrew poetry, these parallels come all the time. The hidden love is meant to be parallel to the enemy's multiple kisses in, in verse 6. Why? Because if you say to someone, oh, I love you so much that I'm going to withhold telling you this really hard thing that you need to hear. I love you so much, I'm not going to tell it to you. You're saying, actually, I love myself too much that I don't want to go through this hard time with you. You're you're not being a friend. Open rebuke is necessary. Sometimes you need to say, friend, you've been a fool. I love you, but you've been a fool. It's the danger of flattery in our culture, isn't it? It's a common tool amongst companions. And Lewis points out soberly that to be a true friend is, is essentially, he says, it's to know constant pain. As you feel it in the other, as you expose things in the other. But you have to be there. You have to give yourself to someone. You have to prioritise another deliberately, sacrificially. You have to even to be honest and speak truth into their lives and expect the same back. If people around you only ever speak words of comfort to you, or the complete opposite. If people around you only speak words of criticism to you, if that is all you know, polarised in those ends, then you have no friends. A friend speaks both and knows when to do so. And that is why Proverbs 27, 17 famously says, it, it's when iron sharpens iron. Now at this stage, I'm sure we're all feeling 
not very good at this. A little concern maybe. Some of us long for friends, but none of us have all the friends our hearts need. So where do we turn? I want to finish. I'd love to have spent more time on this. I could have spent a whole half hour with this. I wanted to turn to this wonderful truth that we have one ultimate friend. And his name is Jesus. Let me think of those principles. Let's, let's, let's go through them and, and apply them to him and see why he is so important. Because he can be our ultimate friend. Because he gave himself at ultimate cost. Sacrificially. He was willing to lose his friendship with his father to be friends with you. He's the friend of sinners, Matthew 11 says. He's willing in the garden of Gethsemane to be betrayed by his closest friends. Why? So to save them. It's restorative. He experienced what we should have experienced. He chose forsakenness so that we would not be. If we know and trust this ultimate friend, it will enable us to be the friends we need to be. Why? Because if you, if you look to Jesus, if you cherish Jesus, if you, if you feel the weight and the glory and the joy and the, the privilege of the friendship with him, eternal friendship with him, well, you'll never worry about rejection from those around you. You'll be willing to give yourself wholeheartedly to them, to love them, to care for them, to speak truth into their lives, not fearing the rejection of others. I want us to finish our series in Proverbs in this simple way, is to simply look to him, to the ultimate friend. I mean, we could have turned to him as the ultimate spouse in Ephesians 5 as well. Because we look to Jesus because he's the one who will never let us down. He's the one who will always be there. Always for us, not for himself. He is the ultimate friend of sinners. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we were open and we were honest and in a sense it is frustrating not to spend more time in each of these passages. Please uh, forgive me if I've uh, done anything to convey truth here which is not appropriate to the passages that we've been reading out. But if this has been faithful then please do the work that you've promised to do that you would take these words and by your spirit that you'd drive them into our hearts. You'd help us see that we need to be good, true, honest, sacrificially loving friends. We need to be... uh, Thinking of not ourselves in our marriages, but of our spouses first. That as we bring up children, uh, that our first and foremost thing and a priority is to teach them your wisdom. Lord, we feel inadequate at times, perhaps all the time. And so therefore, please help us turn, not in despair to ourselves, but in great joy as we turn to the Lord Jesus, the ultimate friend. He's our great example, but he's also the great enabler because as we see him, as we trust him, as we lean on him, he enables us through his word and by his spirit to be the friends that we ought to be. We do not fear uh, the next years as we wait. Perhaps we will be lonely at times. Perhaps we will be uh, feeling that we long for more in relationships. But as we look forward, we look forward to that day where we will be knowing the complete embrace of our eternal friend, of our eternal saviour.
the Lord Jesus Christ. In him we pray. Amen.